We are in the thick of holiday shopping season and holiday delivery season because Americans like to shop online a lot. We also like to return things. Amanda Mull is a staff writer at The Atlantic. She's been getting to know this nebulous world of online returns really well, or as well as she can. In all of the reporting I've done on returns, it has been basically impossible to get any retailer on the record about anything in their returns process. Like, it sort of violates the the magic of consumerism to talk in too many specifics about stuff that people don't like. But we do know that 20 to 30 percent of online sales get returned because Part of the pact between online retailers and us as customers is that we will click purchase in a matter of moments, as long as we can easily send stuff back. It's a behavior that's become ingrained in our marketplaces and our cultural expectations. Amanda says the online retailer Zappos is often credited with starting this trend about 20 years ago. I mean, if you think about Zappos, it's a shoe store. At the dawn of online shopping, people who are used to buying things in person and being able to try things on and look and, you know, size things up and get a full impression of a product before they took it home, looked at a website trying to sell high volumes of shoes and went, this seems like a bad idea. This doesn't seem like something I I want to buy online. So in order for people to adopt this new mode of, of commerce, online retailers had to figure out how to make the financial and psychological risks line up more evenly with shopping in person. Yeah, Zappos had to make it super easy for you to buy shoes or three pairs of shoes even. Yes, there had to be no friction, no penalty, no risk, no psychological doubt. Um, You had to get over all of these habits that had formed for a long time, all of these expectations about what things cost and what is fair in consumer activity. So they made the online shopping experience as close as possible to the real life shopping experience, which means that you can try something on and hand it back to the person selling it and say, I don't want this. But when we don't want something, where does it go? That's the part of this system of commerce that Amanda has been working to demystify for the past couple of years. She recently visited a returns facility to try to find out. A giant warehouse in Pennsylvania filled with cardboard boxes people's unwanted goods, and human beings trying to sort through it all, item by item, packing slip by packing slip. There are so many people, so many workers engaged in, you know, labor day in and day out to sort of figure out what to do with all of the stuff that you don't want. And like their labor deserves to be acknowledged. The system that they work within deserves to be understood. Today on the show, our addiction to online shopping and returning, and the price we're paying for it. I'm Yasmin Khan, in for Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. 
Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you buy anything online, a pair of gloves, a Bluetooth speaker, and then you decide, you know what? I don't need this. You wouldn't be crazy for assuming that the return is going back to the company that made, or at least sold you, the product. But Amanda says, most of the time, that's not how it works. Those boxes you send back, they go to these third-party returns facilities, like the one she recently visited in Pennsylvania. Yes, um, I visited a return facility uh, operated by a company called Inmar Intelligence, which is the largest returns liquidator in the country. They operate 17 different facilities in North America, and I visited one of the bigger ones. And they process all kinds of returns. Um, They have facilities that process like grocery returns. They have facilities that process pharmaceutical returns. I visited one that was more of a general merchandise type of facility, which, you know, deals with sort of all kinds of different internet retailers. Um, You get like major clothing brands, um, major sort of general uh, merchandise stores, department stores, um, discount stores, retail pharmacies, things like that. So I can't disclose like any specific brands. That was the only um, restriction that was put on me when I visited this facility, but it's 300,000 square feet and they they receive all of this stuff. Um, if you buy online regularly, you have almost definitely sent something back to one of Inmar's facilities like this. So under one roof, they're processing returns for jeans and lamps and lunch boxes and whatever, things like that. Yes. In this facility, there are stuffed animals from drugstores. There are beach chairs. There are shoes and clothing. There are small appliances. There are area rugs. There's tons of area rugs in this particular one. There is basically every kind of consumer merchandise you could think of that would be sold um, at like a big box store or an online clothing retailer or a um, chain pharmacy, chain drugstore. Basically everything. Okay. And so how does it work? I'm just picturing piles of stuff. What is a workday like at this place? I mean, the most common thing that you see in this facility is just cardboard. Like everything is sort of palletized into groupings of products that are, you know, inside boxes that are wrapped in this sort of like industrial strength cling wrap that anybody who has worked in a in a big box store in the past, as I have, uh, will recognize as something that you use to sort of like protect stuff that is oddly shaped or doesn't go in a box. And they process in this facility alone 40 million products a year, which is um, over 100,000 a day. But there are just um, a lot of individuals that the the name of the job is called material handler. There's about 150 employees at this location, and um, they sort of go over things one by one. Every every material handler has their own station, a standing desk basically. Um, it's really well lit. So you take out a single a single product, a single shirt. What the material handler then does is sort of like give the product a once over. You check the tag. You know, if it's a button down, you unbutton it. Every garment gets fully turned inside out. People check for stains, for tears, for any kind of abnormalities, um, any kind of indication that you wore the product. So like 
cat hair on it or like a little bit of like makeup on the collar or something like that. Products get smelled often because um, a really good indication that something has been worn and cannot be resold as new is like if it smells like deodorant, if it smells like body odor, if it smells like a person has been inside it for a period of time. And there's no really good way to check for that except for sniffing it. I think that a lot of people who have never done this kind of work or been inside this kind of facility assume that this is the type of work that is like automated, that is done by robots, that is not, that is no longer necessary for humans to deal with this. But it is an incredibly human process, just really fast, really painstaking work to ensure that all of these decisions are made the correct way. What happens to everything? What happens to all the products after they get sorted? Where do they wind up? A big part of the returns process is sort of the material handlers operating this decision tree um, for every product they deal with. And depending on the retailer, that decision tree is going to be set up a little bit differently. So for a shirt from an an apparel retailer that has like a good brand name and that people seek out, um, they probably don't want their shirts with their brand name in them to end up at like a big lots or like a dollar store or something like that. So that retailer can say that like, you know, we only allow our stuff to be resold to like um, a certain type of discounter or maybe like, you know, a Nordstrom rack. And a lot of stuff goes to liquidation like that. When you go into a, into a store that seems to have a bunch of stuff from a bunch of different places that you sort of weren't expecting them to have. Um, this is how they get that inventory. The best case scenario is that the stuff goes back to the brand that sold it and it gets put back in inventory and it gets sold again. That is the the way by which the, the least waste happens. And then after that is where the, the decisions like liquidation come in. Um, a lot of stuff that cannot be put back in inventory is liquidated. You also get things that are recycled and donated if they can't be liquidated. Some of it goes to food banks. Some of it goes to um, shelters of various types. Some of it goes to animal charities. Um, and a lot of things a lot of things cannot be recycled. Um, and usually what happens after that is that it gets destroyed. Sometimes that means incinerated. Sometimes that means um, compacted um, and thrown away. But it, it just, um, that's the end of the line for it. It's trash at that point. It's trash. Okay. So it does still sound um, opaque and wasteful, (laughs) harmful, um, potentially. Yeah. Like part of the reason that reverse logistics is so interesting to me is because like the, the purpose of the reverse logistics industry is to extract as much use and value from these materials as possible before they are thrown away. Um, it is in the best interest of both the brands selling this stuff and of the vendor doing this processing to keep as much stuff out of landfills as possible, which is good. Like those, those are good incentives, but some of it is just like, unavoidable because there is just so much extra product made for American consumers. Um, Most of the returns that MR processes aren't from consumers who sent stuff back. It's from retailers who made too much of the stuff that they ordered and cannot sell it all. Like nobody wants it. When we come back, is there anything we can do about all this waste? Is this system at all working? And if so, who is it working for? 
I think the system works sometimes, you know, when everything goes right, like 90 plus percent of stuff can be sent back to regular inventory. When you look at like the really large multi-brand retailers, the percentage of stuff that gets destroyed immediately from liquidation is like 15%. And it, from those really large retailers, like that, that is an enormous amount of stuff. And that like doesn't work so well. But I don't know that it's possible to make it work any better than that in the current system that we have, because, you know, these really high return rates, the um, the overstocking of shelves in order to give people like this, this sort of um, sense of abundance and sense of convenience, that is what creates most of that waste, this sort of overproduction to feed overconsumption. And it would ha- require like a, a fundamental shift in like the, the business models of, of the retailers in order to reduce that significantly I think what would have to shift what would they what would they have to do they would have to sell less stuff I think like they would have to become more efficient businesses in a way that they don't really want to become more efficient because that system is what creates overconsumption and and it's what creates this surplus because you can't offer everybody in America, everything they want all the time at like a variety of price points. Um, if you don't have a bunch of stuff that people don't want, um, because you have to prepare for every contingency, you have to prepare for every possible customer. And that's what stores like Amazon and Walmart do is they, they try to carry something for everyone for every, um, possibility, they don't want anybody to to open their website and and leave empty-handed. And in order to do that, it just requires a lot of stuff. Just period. And it's this this idea that retailers should always be growing, should always be expanding, should always be acquiring more customers, should always be becoming more profitable, should always be um, in a process of outward and upward expansion that sort of creates all of this waste. And I don't think that system of like growth at any cost in perpetuity is possible without waste. Wow. That is so, that feels, feels, I feel that (laughs) on my chest. Uh, I feel like I am an equal partner in this system to stores. And so when I'm thinking about like, who is this harming? I guess I'm asking you, who is this harming? I think It harms different people in different ways, but I think it harms ultimately almost everyone in some way. That starts at the at the point of production. I think that so much of our stuff is manufactured in places where people are not paid any kind of living wage. Um, There's a lot of forced labor in the consumer system. There is a lot of child labor in the consumer system. Um, There's a lot of environmental harm in the creation of these products. So I think that like that is the most like immediate and obvious harm in my mind. And then you get the harms of waste because overconsumption produces, you know, um, pollution on the front end and pollution on the back end, especially when it comes to garments. There are huge clothing dumps in Africa and South America. I think the, the most famous ones are in Ghana and Chile. And you get just these sort of like vast expanses of like thrown out clothing. A lot of it has tags still on it. It's clothing that nobody ever used. And like that stuff is all made of, you know, plastics, polyester, acrylic, things like that are all plastics. And that stuff is just all sitting on the ground. It's getting rained on. It's um, getting into waterways. It's 
there is there is so much harm on the back end from all of that um, and from the the ways that it's disposed of. But Amanda says while people geographically closer to the manufacturing process might be getting the brunt of the harm, U.S. consumers are not getting away scot-free. On the consumer end, I still think it's harmful because the consumer system is like fundamentally individualistic and alienating. It asks people to look to consumer decisions for um, the things that they need and want out of life, for pleasure, for joy, for self-actualization, for health, for all of these things that, that people want. And if you divert all of that energy and all of those decisions into the consumer system, you divert them away from humanity. You start to rely on the consumer system for things that in the past we might have relied on the people in our community for. Consumerism didn't create hierarchy by any stretch of the imagination, but it sort of replaces other types of thinking about each other and relating to each other with mediation provided by consumption. And that is fundamentally mediation provided by corporate interests. I mean, obviously, American consumerism is a powerful force. It is part of our culture and the way that we think about things and how we want things. But but it sounded like people were more open now to thinking about the planet, to thinking about repercussions of the way that we shop and buy on the planet and um, on excess and waste. Is that not the case? I think that it's true that people are more open to thinking about these things and more concerned about sustainability, about the environment. But among people who who think about the consumer industry and, and study it and study retail, there is a big and well-known divide between consumer sentiment and consumer behavior. You know, and I think that that's understandable once you like step back and think about it in the context of, you know, any individual's own actions. There are things that like I I believe are are bad. Like I don't I don't think it's a good idea for me to or for anybody to order um, a ton of stuff every year from Amazon. I still order from Amazon from time to time, you know, so that that is a, a situation in which my consumer sentiment and my consumer behavior conflict. And this is the case for like almost everybody. So I guess my last question, how how would you suggest being a more mindful online consumer, especially right now? I think like the the first best thing you can do is to buy whatever you can secondhand, buy from secondhand platforms, from thrift stores in your area, from Facebook marketplace, whatever, buy nothing groups. There's probably one in your area that, that you might be able to, um, to get some stuff from or to give away stuff. And also just like ask around. Um, a lot of the stuff we buy is stuff that like our friends have in the back of our closet and that they'd be happy to give to us because they're not using it anymore. And I think that when you give people an opportunity to help each other, a lot of times they are happy to do that. If you need to buy stuff online, which like all of us do, I think to a certain extent, one of the best things that you can do that has helped me a lot, just go into your like promotions tab in your Gmail and just unsubscribe from almost everything. And that really, I think being sort of free from those constant like bids for your attention that live alongside the messages that you have to check all the time for non-commercial reasons can be really, really useful. Another thing that I, I have begun recommending to people is that you look at online shopping as a chore that you need to do. So you set like a particular time for it. Maybe you're going to get all your online shopping for the week done on like Saturday morning. 
um, while you drink your coffee. I think that one of online shopping's greatest victories has been making shopping something that that we do all the time without any without any natural borders instead of something that we go to a particular place at a particular time in order to do. And anything that you can do to sort of re-compartmentalize shopping into a thing that happens at a particular place or a particular time is ultimately useful as far as not wasting resources, uh, whether that is yours or the products themselves. I like that because it is, shopping is definitely a thing that just can float in and out of your day, all day. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Amanda Mull is a staff writer at The Atlantic. That's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We're led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations at Slate. And I'm Yasmin Khan, in for Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.